Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. Uh, We're coming to you from way out there. I'm not sure whether we're coming to you from the moon or from Mars or from Jupiter, but somewhere out there. Yeah, in fact, um, on on landing, uh, it might have impacted the quality of this this content. Uh, I don't think that line worked. No. I don't think it did either, but we can stay with it. We can keep it in because it shows that you're not perfect. <laughs> I like that. So today we talk about some really cool stuff. I mean, I could honestly shoot the shit about space for the rest of my life, and then it got better. And so we're talking to Robert Jacobson, author of the book Space is Open for Business, and just some amazing stuff like we talked about tesla we talked about the moon and we talked about well we just improvised <laughs> enough said you'll get why that's why that made me chuckle uh, so here's robert jacobson Nice to talk with you, Robert. I have to say, um, I, I trust you immediately because your your last name is also the son of somebody. It is the son of Jacob, you know. But it was that's a translation, though. So I think originally it was something like, uh, depending on what part of the family you're talking to, it could have been could have gotten uh, Jankolovich, um, Yankel, Yankolovich. There were variations on that, but you know, my name was the anglicized version of Jacobson. Love good to that. meet today yeah and so uh speaking of kind of the earth and how you know we we like to change our names uh in various ways to i don't know make it more uh, palatable for each other let's go off the planet for a second uh so you're a space guy that that gets me excited i'm like drooling over here to hear about the different projects you've worked on obviously that's why randy and i are friends because because he he did space stuff what have the cool parts of your career been with regard to space? Well, I think most recently, the, several years ago, I put part of a team for a group called Arc Mission Foundation. And we're, we've got the audacious goal of trying to back up Earth civilization through its co- culture and knowledge. And we're scouting some of the most bleeding edge uh, storage technology. And we put the first library on the moon, consisting of about 35 million pages of Earth civilization. And that was with the very first private lunar lander, which was an Israeli effort that was actually initiated by some fairly young y- young entrepreneurs and engineers called SpaceIL. And we had um, payload on there through the Ark Mission Foundation. And granted, it, it sort of had a hard landing the last 100 meters or so, but we believe that our payload is still intact. And even if it did break apart, you know, if you found it, it would be like finding broken pottery shards because... The cool part of the technology that we used is that we etched in both analog and digital information. So if you had just a regular high school grade microscope and you found one of our, um, you know, our, our discs were sort of in a, in, in a stack, a bundle of discs, very thin plates of nickel. If you're looking at one of the analog layers, you could read the, the text or see the images with just a microscope. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It's going to be there for, you know, perhaps billions of years. 
So if somebody had really sensitive, like alien fingers, they could also maybe read by just kind of rubbing their fingers over it. It won't have, it won't be like a braille, but it is uh, more of a, think of it as really small photos embedded into the, uh, into the plate of metal. But you know what, that would be an interesting idea because you have to start thinking about, and you know, maybe there could be beings that maybe don't have Right, traditional um, eye sensors. Maybe they're using. I mean, I, I stole I stole that from The Martian, the book, because they, or maybe it wasn't The Martian. Maybe it was the other book that guy wrote. But you know, where aliens don't have eyes, and so everything that they do is ugly, but it has really nice texture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So that that's really fascinating, Robert. Thirty. You said thirty-five thousand pages. About, no, about thirty-five Roughly. million. Thirty-five million. Who selected them? It was a. It was uh, internally curated over several years, and we our intention was to be um, as unbiased as we could, as open and as inclusive. So it has libraries from many of the great cultures, religions of human civilization. It's not just uh, 20th century, you know, North American or Western European. We we tried to give a really well-rounded group for this very first library. We plan on having future libraries, and we also installed one in Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster using a different technology. And that was a little bit more symbolic because we only, we put the uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series Ooh. on there. So although it's technically a, a solar library that's now out there orbiting the sun, you know, it was kind of symbolic. I was about to ask you if you managed to put a, a suitcase in the trunk of the, the Roadster, because yeah, that would have been the next logical thing. Yeah, we got it in the, um, we put it in this, uh, the disc that we used for that mission is made of quartz and it's inside the um, glove compartment. So unless somebody's disrupted the roadster out there, it's presumably, or, or if the, the rubber or plastic has broken down, which I, I don't think it has degraded that much yet, it's probably all the contents should be, you know, secured inside the uh, glove compartment. So speaking of, speaking of the roadster, speaking of Isaac Asimov in a way, Talk to, you know, from your perspective as someone who really understands the whole of, let's say, the industry of space, what's the value of branding and story? Because obviously all of the elements are, you know, storing a library on the moon is also part of the story. How do they fit into the overall story and what's the goal? Are we, are we trying to get out of the solar system? Are we trying to, you know, give our kids reading materials if we have to all of a sudden abscond to the moon because we've destroyed this planet or what what's your what's your take on all of it well for arc mission foundation's purposes um we're looking um we look to nature for a lot of solutions and nature tends to do things in terms of you know know, resiliency having multiple backups mass redundancy so we want to actually pepper these different types of archives, arcs as we internally call them, and libraries throughout the solar system with the hope that there will be um, humans that might find them in the mid to long-term future and also as just backup because human civilization here in Terra Firma is so incredibly fragile and our knowledge is even more ephemeral and human civilizations only tend to last on average of like 300-ish years. So when you you know just about every year you'll hear something in the news about a library burning down somewhere. Um, I remember I think it was sometime in the past year there was a, a there was a major library I think in South Africa at a university that burned down. We had one, the museum in Brazil they lost I think almost a hundred percent of their contents at their national museum, 
And we think it's probably not a bad idea to try to find other ways to back things up off the planet Earth. And in terms of the story, we je- we definitely think a lot about story and how we can make this, um, you know, improve our own brand. And, you know, humans love stories. It's probably one of our u- unique features on how we, we, we share stories and we share values and traditions. And I think sometimes early on, I, th- I felt this is just my personal perspective, is that many earlier space companies were not necessarily doing the best job of storytelling. You know, they were worried very much about the technology, the engineering, which was impressive. And and Randy and I know about this very well. Randy worked a lot with a lot of engineers, but it's also very useful to have, you know, you don't have to spend $100,000 creating your brand if you don't have $100,000 for it. But there are basic things that you can do to put yourself in the path of success. And part of branding is it's, it's, you know, it's sharing what your value, what your, your company, your organizational values, whether they're current and or aspirational. And that can include everything from the color scheme to navigation on the website or the story you're telling and your, your, your social media. So it's all encompassing and it can be pretty overwhelming. But I would say to probably other entrepreneurs or, or people in, or, or makers and builders, you can start small. A business school professor told me he would always emphasize small steps for big wins. And these can be actionable things that you can do on a daily basis or just you know moving forward with small steps to making something a, a cohesive story that your users or audience or customers will be able to um, understand. I think that is really important. So having been in the space industry for more years than I can actually want to think about, Story became something that was related, as you say, around the technology, not around the purpose or the aspirations or the meaning or why it's important to do space exploration or, and why it's important that people are trying to, to get off this rock, as it is often put. The entrepreneurs and the engineers all have reasons for being in the industry. And I'm sure you've got a lot of projects on the go right now, where you've got really interesting stories. How do they get out into the world? What's what's the first step for those guys? I think some of the um, groups that I'm working with and people, I would say this is kind of contemporarily currently, are doing a little better job in terms of a customer or, you know, it used to be just called generically business development. And then with like some of the lean methodologies and, and some of the other kind of entrepreneurial toolkits that came out, they're talking about, you know, customer development. And what that really means is before you maybe build your rocket ship, you do a little bit of research. It can be anything from emails, telephone surveys, talking to potential users or customers. And I'm seeing uh, clients do this and just asking if you had this capability, would you use it? Would you pay for it? And this can be done in a lot of different ways. There's really no right or wrong. And and there's lots of, of data out there on certain best practices. But the idea is really before you build the rocket ship, even if you had all the funding for the rocket ship, you find out, you know, who is going to use this. And, 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 and when you do this research, you might uncover other things and activities and use cases that you might not ne- have necessarily thought of. And this is where the wisdom of the crowd can serve you well. And you might also find things to confirm biases or beliefs that, oh, we don't really want to do, we don't want to go in this area and customers are, are sort of, are sort of, you know, upholding that <laughs> and affirming it. Now, you've written, a, you've written a book called Space is Open for Business. 
That is correct. For the average average listener sitting out there, they're thinking Elon Musk, Elon Musk is up is up there, and it, you know, costs a fortune to send something up into space. How can it be open for business? Um, it's not like you just walk into your corner shop. Yeah, well, space has actually been open for business for several decades. We have a very robust telecommunications sector where we have satellites that provide everything from weather data, some you know, banking, telephony video services, observing the earth, just those services are, you know, already, it's a very traditional, robust industry. But what we have what's going on now is sort of a couple of things. Governments is particularly interested in working with some more vendors. They've always worked with the private sector. I mean, you can go back to the 60s and you can see people at the Rockwell patches and, you know, businesses always, they've always had contractors and subcontractors serving out different needs for government. But NASA in particular and other parts of the DOD are now open to working with smaller startups or even startup style organizations. And you had the invention of the CubeSat. And the CubeSat was a form factor of a satellite that was 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, really small. It was designed and invented by um, several professors. And they just simply wanted to give this as a tool for hardware for that their students to be able to work on on the bench in, in school. Now, the funny thing happened is somebody said, let's try to fly one of these. And a few of them did fly in the early 2000s. And then someone else said, hey, can we put more sensors on this? Can we put things kind of like, you know, you got the power of your, your, your smartphone. It's got a lot of power. Can we kind of do this with these small satellite packages? And then a few people said, hey, can we do this commercially? Or maybe I'll invest in this. And now you have a really large and growing smaller satellite uh, industry where where these entrepreneurs and even governments to some extent are trying to find new capabilities. Um, they won't replace the super high performance satellites that cost several hundred million dollars a piece, but they will be complementary. And these new satellites in their respective constellations could potentially give other entrepreneurs here on Terraforma opportunities to create other applications, which then potentially have other second order effects. So I would say it's already open for business. It's never been easier to create a space business. It's gonna keep getting easier. And the cost of launch is, is still dropping. The important thing besides just the cost uh, of, and expense to getting your mass to space is also going to be calendaring it because space is traditionally very slow and complex. And now we're looking at speed, high volume, less customization, more volume. and as that becomes you know increasing capability you're going to be able to just go on a calendar and say okay if i meet these if i hit all these check you know check boxes i could fly my satellite you know four months from now or six months or, or whatever it might be because for a long time it was very unpredictable and the space industry was prone to very long delays and we're seeing um potential tightening up of that of that area so the economics has definitely changed as well. If you were sending up a satellite that was as big as a school bus and it was costing $100 million to build it and launch it, you had to make sure that everything was going to work. So you're going to use technology that has been proven for 10 or 15 years. If you're sending up a smaller satellite that's twenty dollars or $50,000, you can use experimental technology on it because even though you don't want to lose that, investment, but you can at least take the chance. It's not going to be fatal to your business if you lose that satellite. And then the time to launch is also another element of that. So with the changing economics, where do you see 
the future of where's the next big thing? Is it asteroid mining? Is it what? What is it really going to be? I think it's multiple things in parallel. I think we're still going to see a major push on the amount of data that's going to be coming from space or generated from space assets. I think there's also potentially very cool intersection on use cases around blockchain. Think crypto, but let's just say blockchain technologies with space. And an example of that would be new types of ledgers. Maybe you're doing mining in space or you're, you've got products that you're buying and selling in space. And it might be difficult to have a, a transparent and robust marketplace. You know, difficult for people to come up and verify the transactions. And you've got um, a lot of different nation states with the different you know, their different respective satellites. So you could see the blockchain ledgers being very useful, maybe some of the transactional transparency around that. I think the moon is there's a lot of energy going towards the moon, and why it's going to be kind of both a combination of a, a training place playground and uh, resource utilization. Everything from the building materials for um, bases and settlements there, mining it for potential fuel for other places to visit and explore and live in the solar system. And um, so a great place for us to uh, train and potentially um, make money from uh, in parallel. And then the other area that's, that's happening, I shouldn't short cite this, is, is human activity in, or, or things just in this lower Earth orbit economy. And having there's already interest in developing commercial slash private habitable human rated platforms for people to live on in short duration or longer duration. And what types of activities people do? Well, they might be taking selfies and, you know, bringing an animal and having fun and having just pure joy. And when people criticize the word joyride, I said, there's nothing wrong with somebody doing something to have more joy in their life. We actually need to go back to the original construct of the word more joy and some thrill is an okay thing. And we will have serious research being done to bring new materials and advancing potentially new treatments for diseases. And, and perhaps I haven't seen much of this. But we have uh, climate change that we're dealing with on Earth, and maybe space can better advance some solutions. Right now, space is, has been traditionally used for a lot of observational capabilities, and, and, and some of the earliest modeling for climate change came from space assets. But it would be interesting to see where there could be um, real solution sets, not just observational ones. So, Robert, I feel like we got to roll back way before all of that because you and i share something remarkable in common and that is training to the nth degree for something we don't end up doing in our lives or we end up doing but not as our profession so i have a phd in classical composition you have an mfa in music, music. i do yeah yeah but what people often sort of misunderstand, particularly me when I was younger, is that the way our brains were opened up in the process of understanding structures in music, it's actually a remarkable thing in comparison to, you know, maybe how people are trained in the sciences and so forth. And I think we open up our minds in a different way than others might have. So, so where did your music, your love for music start? How did that sort of push you all the way to that terminal degree mm -hmm. and how, how do you still use that today to, to understand space or investments or the world or any of that stuff sure uh thank you kent and yeah always great to always connect with a, a fellow uh musician on this topic 
I, I, I had some memories of my par- of a parents putting, I don't know who bought it, a drum kit from one of the holidays in the kitchen. Our, our house was small and it didn't last many days because I think I was a pretty hyper kid. And I think the amount of noise it made, they're like, mm, wrong instrument for this house. And, and then I think music kind of like I was always around music, but it wasn't till I got back, really got into it in it was a junior high. I wanted to play piano. We didn't have one. And my dad had a guitar. And so I just started picking it up and fiddling with it and then taking some lessons, you know, in the in the area. And it really led me to explore my one of my big loves, which is improvisation and jazz. I, I heard two big things. I heard Miles Davis and Pat Metheny. And it's funny, Pat Metheny for him, he's a big musician. Miles Davis was his big aha moment he heard then said I have to be a jazz musician and he said it was so transformative it was as if one of our kids came to us and said I want to be a professional Minecraft player and music has this wonderful way of allows you to connect with other humans that you might not speak the same uh, verbal language it allows you to think and create things using not just things that are traditional instruments you can sometimes take you know things that are a little more abstract and turn them into things that we are music you know using texture and ambience and all the other you know things that we have in a, in terms of the palette to choose from and it still informs a lot of my decision or not so much decision making but just how i view the world because i i see the world as very improvisatory it's almost like a dance or like we have this you know our lives once we die, that's like our song. You know, we have one final, our compositions, our entire our entire life, and there's different arcs. And some of it's boring, and some of it's ugly, and some of it's fun and hilarious, but it's all part of a composition. And when you hear some of the great, the great composers of the world, and I include not just the Western art mutists, but, you know, whether it's Ravi Shankar and, and you know, and some of the great true, true masters whose music are a Bach, whose music is is literally timeless, they have all of this soaked and embedded in their music. And, and so when I operate in the world, many times, if there's something that kind of triggers me, I have to think back and going, okay, maybe I don't, why don't I like this right now? And this is just my own perception. It's even sometimes like great, you know, music, you know, I've heard music is supposed to be great and going, oh, I don't get this. And then later in life, I'm going, oh, I really do like it. Why did I not like it at that time? I wasn't just, I wasn't mature enough. I didn't have the vocabulary. So I have found improvisation and it's not just making things up as you go along, uh, especially in, in, within music, there's tools that you can have. So you could be a computer programmer or a brand designer or an engineer, and there's tools that you can use from your your you know your discipline and apply that to solving really tricky problems. And I think that's where it's most helpful. And sometimes the problems aren't necessarily technical, but many times they're relational or interpersonal. Because so much of life is about just how we are acting with our fellow humans. Because at the end of our lives, people don't really care you know, how much money was in the bank, what company did you work for, even what pieces of music you necessarily wrote, but they care about like who you wrote. Now, granted, you might do something really awesome that might, if it lasts a long time, that's a beautiful thing. You know, if it endures beyond your life, that's 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 a rare and wonderful gift. But so much of the here and now is about just how we treat each other. And just this weekend, 
after not hearing it for 20 years, heard sketches of Spain on ridiculous, wonderful speakers and, and realized again the genius of, of Miles Davis. And I'm also obsessed with improvisation. And I think I, I wasn't aware that you were into that, but now it's absolutely clear how that applies to, to your work because the great investors, the great uh, thinkers, the, they're all improvising. They're all, uh, well, great humans improvise. So really exciting to hear about that. So do you still play? Do you still perform, right? Well, I do. Um, with the pandemic, I've only gotten together since being vaccinated a few times with some select uh, individuals. I had a, a few groups that were sort of on and off. I actually have one group, a project, it's kind of a project band with my wife called Linear Ghost. And uh, she um, does movement and writes all the text and sculpts text in real time using loopers. And we had uh, two percussionists and electric bass player in it. So that's uh, um, that's something I've, I've put out some jazz albums that are out under my name. I've played with some different groups. One of my pandemic activities was digging in more on the Turkish oud, which I was gifted. And I'm very slowly getting into it, but it really, the, the something about, I think, just fretless instruments really resonates so deeply. Like you can, as, as I heard um, Stuart Copeland say in an interview just the other day, uh, the drummer from The Police, who's also a w composer, he said, with a fretless instrument, you can renegotiate with the note. And what that means for somebody who's not hearing this is you don't have the little bars across the neck on a string instrument, which separate each note. So like violins and cellos have, it's a fretless. There's none of these little bars demarcating the pitches. So it's not as clear between C and C sharp or C sharp and D. It's a little fuzzy and you can get microtones and things of that nature. So I love that phrase, being able to renegotiate with the notes. I love that. Yeah, that's I. A friend of mine, Bakiti Kumalo, ripped the frets off of his electric bass growing up in South Africa, and he was locally famous to have created this fretless bass. And he's the one that ended up doing um, Graceland with Paul Simon. So all those. Oh my crazy God, I love that. And, I I was yeah. just listening to Graceland literally like in the last week or two. I mean, Paul Graceland and Rhythm of the yeah. Saints are like. Graceland was probably the, was the very first CD I ever heard. You know, I, I grew up, I was in the 80s and 90s, but I was a little kid. But I remember my friend's father getting a CD player and he had Graceland. And I remember, I don't think we were so initially impressed, but we liked the music because we'd heard the song Graceland. I'd seen the video that had um, Chevy Chase, but the, the tray opened, it slid in and out. And we probably opened it and closed it 50 times. We thought, wow, this is the future. <laughs> yeah. I remember those those were the coolest things ever. And so I want to get back to business because we could talk music for like seven oh, weeks certainly. straight. The idea of a fretless instrument, it requires that you do something and correct at the last second, which is a whole lot like space stuff that I've read about. I, I don't know that much, but it's it's all it's about you do something, but you always have to correct for whatever's happening around you, right? Yeah, I mean, when they're when they have when they put up a, a group of satellites, depending on how they deploy them, they're generally adjusting them with some type of propulsion. Some of these newer satellites don't have propulsion, and what's kind of interesting is they have to actually kind of figure out where it's going to go, you know, and some of these little satellites are put in a group, they're launched off the rocket, 
and they don't exactly know precisely which orbit they're going to be. They kind of know approximately. And then they have little gyros and some things to do some subtle corrections. But up until they're like kind of operational, they're they're still kind of course correcting. And sometimes they're working with some really limited constraints. And I think that's a kind of a intriguing part about the space industry is it's it's not like, a, um, you know, your head, let's just say you're head of a big expensive, pro, you know, big project and you have all the resources of the world. Even if you're talking about like the Mars lander or, or, or some project going to Mars where it takes 10 years to design, they have a budget, they have a, not just an economic budget, they have a mass budget. So there's a lot of constraints that they're they're constantly dealing with and they're, you know, it is a dance because it's push and pull because, you know, the communications people say, well, we want more power to bring back more data. And, the you know, every group within that project is going to be fighting tooth the nail for their allotment. So and I don't know if that helps, but maybe it helps color <laughs> your question. So when, when we talk about allotment, it scares me a little bit because uh, we've run out of our allotment of time. So... <laughs> I really, really enjoyed talking with you, Robert. I could talk to you for hours, so just the fact that we have to stop, very unfortunate to me. Where can people find you, and what sort of people would you like to connect with? Uh, great. Uh, spaceadvisors.com, robertjacobson.com. My book is available in all formats at spacesopenforbusiness.com, and the subtitle is The Industry That Can Transform Humanity. And I'm most interested in connecting with organizations that are looking for a strategy for space. They could be existing groups and going, gosh, you know, we're working on our five-year, 10-year, how do we need to be getting involved and participating? That would be uh, tremendously cool to be able to uh, help them make, make that possible. There's so many space jokes, but I just have to say, <laughs> um, watch this space. Fair enough, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> really fun to talk with you, Robert. Um, can't wait you, to Kent. see what you do next. Thank you, Kent. Thank you, Randy, for having me. Thanks, Robert. I really, 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 I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. It is rare for us to have somebody who is so such a thought leader in an out-of-this-world level of knowledge. It's it's great. I, I really enjoyed it. I I love the 35 million pages of human history and culture and knowledge and wisdom that is sitting on the moon waiting for somebody to come along and read it. Amazing stuff. As long as they have eyeballs or, or some way of <laughs> sensing. No, I, I, I'm sure they've solved for all those things. I'm, I'm so amazed that we have human brains going towards this because I, I just had no idea that um, we're already thinking so far into the future that this is also for humans and not just for aliens that this is that we're archiving this material and putting it in a safe place like the moon how cool is that so i was thinking kent that some of our listeners are, are archiving their knowledge they're archiving their intellectual property they're archiving their skills and that's great but Maybe there's generations today that need to actually learn a little bit about that. So maybe they need to be more visible in what they have. And maybe they need to have a strategy to get it out into the public domain. Absolutely. 
and I think there's no better way to, you know, uh, take your life's work and put it on a public stage than to, um, you know, turn it into something. It's never too late. We love working with people who take their life's intellectual property and put it on a public spa uh, spage. <laughs> stage, as it were. Stage. Uh, that's... I so oh, a space stage. A, space a space stage. Yeah. It's a space. Yeah. For that to work, you need to be visible. You need to have a strategy. If you go to thoughtpartnergroup.com, you'll see a little assessment that you can take. It's free. takes you a couple of minutes, and you'll be able to work out just how visible you really are. Or if you want to get crazy, go to crazymba.com. There's lots of space there as well. Thank you.